Hello and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of SHE Logistics Magazine. This is our fifth episode and it's come around really quickly. The first episode broadcast back in July and the topic was Black Friday and it's clearly just as relevant today because people are still downloading it. Are you up to date on all the episodes? I'm sure you are. Episode two, the death of the high street debate and three, will machines take over are well worth a play and a share so please do. The plan has been to turn our readers into listeners and our listeners into readers and it seems to be working as we've had thousands of downloads of the podcasts and more people asking to subscribe to the magazine. The medium has also brought brand new people to the SAG Logistics table and I'd like to say welcome to those. Episode 5 tells the story of another relevant B word, Brexit, which requires even more planning than that pesky peak. This episode you'll hear from Andrew Baxter, Managing Director at Europa Worldwide Group, who campaigned for leave. It's hugely important that that is a deal. If there wasn't a deal, it would be a a very significant issue in our sector. Next up, fresh logistics driver, Kevin Keeney. I would welcome some reassurance. Someone to let me know where I stand. Um, Someone to let me know that my licence is still going to be valid. Pauline Bastidon, Head of European Policy at the FTA. You might not necessarily see a big change one minute after um, 11 p.m. on the 29th of March in the event of no deal, uh, but it would become apparent uh, probably after a while. Finally, the FSDF's Chief Executive Shane Brennan, who we spoke to last week at the SHT Logistics Conference in Birmingham. I think we're a bit concerned there hasn't been enough talk about how we specifically move food. We're not convinced that there's been enough grip of where do we physically do those sorts of checks if they have to happen. And now, David Tran, Assistant Editor with the News. Thanks, Kirsty. There have been some interesting developments over the past month within the UK logistics sector. Hermes, the consumer delivery specialist, has officially opened its purpose-built parcel distribution depot at Prologis Park in Hemel Hempstead, as it further enhances its network and infrastructure ahead of what is anticipated to be its busiest peak season to date. The 80,000-square-foot depot, which will lead to the creation of 15 new jobs, highlights Hermes's ongoing dedication to innovation, sustainability and future growth. Meanwhile, the British International Freight Association, the trade association for UK freight forwarding companies and logistics service providers, says that whilst it welcomed some of the announcements in last month's UK budget, it feels that the issues covered are all overshadowed by the ongoing uncertainty over the shape that the UK's exit from the EU is going to take. Other associations have chimed in on the debate how the budget will affect key industry stakeholders. Shane Burnham, the Chief Executive of the Food Storage and Distribution Federation, mentioned what the result budget meant to him and his members. Well, in terms of the overall of the budget, I think we felt that it's a bit of an open question because all the initiatives that were announced, most of which were positive, 
really sort of had the big question hanging over it of what's going to happen around Brexit and the issue of the deal. So it's very hard to dwell on that. But one very specific thing that I was very relieved to see was they didn't press ahead with quick action to remove the ability to use red diesel on our members' vehicles. That issue, which we estimated would cost at least £100 million immediately in the next financial year if they had gone ahead and done that. Um, and we wrote to the Environment Secretary and to the Chancellor setting out our concerns about that. Hopefully, they've listed, our letter had a, an influence on that, on that decision and their thinking. It's, of course, it's decision deferred rather than decision made. So they're not going to go ahead with it. But the key thing is not about the end removing or moving away from diesel in the long term the issue is over what time frame we do that and whether there are incentives to invest in alternatives which is what we're going to continue talking about meanwhile prologis europe announced healthy results during the third quarter of 2018 prologis europe was buoyed by continued healthy demand positive customer sentiment and occupancy of 98 percent during the period meanwhile during the quarter the company signed 372,000 square metres of new leases and 302,000 square metres of lease renewals. Finally, budget supermarket Aldi has renewed its UK warehouse distribution contract with DAXA. The two companies have signed a new five-year contract, which will see DAXA provide a warehouse platform as well as UK and Ireland distribution services for a wide range of Aldi's products. The cooperation between Audi and Daxa in the UK stretched back more than 25 years, during which time the logistics provider has operated an increasingly varied portfolio of custom services, inbound logistics, freight forwarding, warehouse and value-added services for the fast-expanding retailer. That is the news across the UK logistics market. Now here is property editor David Tame with goings-on in the logistics property sector. Thank you David, and now for the property news, or perhaps this month time for the property weather. At this time of year there are two things that are certainties in the British weather, strong winds and frost pockets and I thought it might be an interesting way to understand the logistics property market in November 2018 if we approach it through those two problems, frost pockets and strong winds. So let's start with the strong winds. Chancellor Philip Hammond announced his budget just a few weeks ago. Most of it has not very much relevance to the logistics property sector, but the growth forecasts certainly do. And this is where the headwinds come in. 2019's growth has been revised up to 1.6%, up from 1.3%. Well, that's brilliant. And 2020 is up to 1.4%. The difficulty is that with an economy like that of the UK, maintaining growth at that level barely keeps us standing still. We need substantially more. At the same time, we've got some other rather disconcerting forecasts. The UK Consumer Confidence Indexes, and there are various indexes you can check your pick, all show a sharp fall off after the summer, in some cases really quite substantial. We've got other more solid bits of evidence because consumer confidence surveys mean something and nothing. Something like car registrations in the UK. Now that's a real number that we can track. And they have been falling steadily since the beginning of 2017. They dipped again in October. According to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, new car registrations fell 2.9% on the last month. Now that's substantial. Of course, it's driven by drop-in diesel registrations. So where am I going with this strong wind stuff? Well, there are clearly reasons for battening down the hatches, economically speaking. Although it is often said that the logistics property sector is insulated because of structural change, because of the need for new warehousing to meet e-commerce demands, 
it can't hold out forever. A strong wind will take the roof off any warehouse. So how about frost pockets? Well, we have a few of them as well. We now know that Debenhams has some serious problems and that's the latest in a number of high street chains to face considerable financial pressure. Various frost pockets in the high street will continue to have repercussions for the logistics property sector and we must expect it to get worse, I think, rather than better. Now, having said all that, there is plenty of activity. Autumn may look like a period when the world is retreating to its shell, but in fact the buds for next year are forming. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the logistics property sector. Just a day or two ago, Eddie Stobart Logistics and developer Liberty Properties announced that they would press on with a 630,000 square foot logistics project on Greenbelt land at Warrington. Uh, This is one of any number of large schemes I could point to. There are also some which are not just volumes of floor space, but quality of floor space. The Hutt Group, the online retailer, has agreed to take 180,000 square feet at Manchester Airport North site in a deal with an American developer and a Midlands developer called Stoford. This is significant. These people are investing for the future. These are the green buds which will flourish next spring. And on that note, perhaps we can conclude the logistics property weather forecast. That brings us up to date with the latest property news. The sponsor of this episode is IMHX 2019. IMHX is taking place on the 24th to the 27th of September at the NEC in Birmingham. Investec are returning as sponsor of the event. Andrew Woodward, Head of Materials Handling at Investec Asset Finance, tells us why. This is the second time we've been the headline sponsor, previous year in 2016, which was very successful for us. We have a lot of customers who will be attending the event and we just feel it's the right thing to demonstrate our commitment to the industry. The experts on our stand will be our materials handling team, who between us have had over 140 years of experience in materials handling finance, but alongside those we will also be bringing along people from the bank that will be able to advise on issues such as commodities and foreign exchange and other matters of significance. Visitor registration is now open at www.imhx.net. Register to receive all the latest show news. We'll also be including a show preview in our August and our September issues of SHD Logistics. Brexit. It's a bit of an animal. People have started to refer to it as the B word, which suggests it's offensive. Brexit is an integral part of business conversations. It's no longer a separate discussion, a separate conference session. It's every discussion. It's every conference session. But people are sick of the B word. They are sick of reading about it. So I wondered, how do I deliver a podcast about Brexit that people in logistics will want to listen to? This episode, we've tried to include voices you won't have necessarily heard before. Kevin, the driver... Andrew Baxter, Chief Executive of Europa Worldwide Group. Pauline Bastidon, FTA's Head of European Policy, to name a few. Throughout this process, I have treated the EU 
with nothing but respect. The UK expects the same. A good relationship at the end of this process depends on it. At this late stage in we the can all get a little tired of the ongoing Brexit narrative, which is following us around. But you can still find plenty of passion in the debate. Andrew Baxter campaigned passionately for leave ahead of the vote. He hasn't changed his position. I am the managing director of Europa Worldwide Group. That's a company that I acquired just over five years ago. 75% of our business is involved in the distribution of goods between the UK and Europe. Um, the rest of our business is sort of warehousing and air and sea freight business. I have always been in favour of Brexit and I remain in favour of Brexit, even though that might short cause some short-term complications. I fundamentally believe that the EU is heading in the, the wrong direction. Um, and in the end, that will be some kind of significant issue. Um, and the best thing that we can do is to get out of the EU now so that we are um, less entangled in that, that issue when that develops. Um, I believe that the EU uh, they are fundamentally moving towards a super state where they don't have democratic approval. And therefore, I don't believe a super state will work in, in practice. Um, the problem that they have is they can't get the euro to work without the creation of a super state. So um, either which way, they, they've got some kind of significant problem that they've got to try and get out of. Um, Britain's never been interested or in favour of um, the development of a European super state. And therefore, you know, why, why would we want to get entangled in this process when we could simply be an independent self-governing nation. The complications are leaving the customs union, the reinstatement of customs clearance. That will make the movement of goods between the UK and Europe more complicated than it is now. Short term, well, if we were to leave with no deal, there would be quite significant issues. I don't believe that we will leave with no deal. And therefore, I think that we can put in place processes that mean that the actual level of issues uh, surrounding that are, are not so big. So the issues really revolve around customs clearance. Of course, having less immigration will make it harder to recruit, you know, relatively unskilled labour. And having that free flowing of labour from the eastern part of the EU coming in has, has been helpful to our business and helpful to logistics businesses. So. Um, I can understand why people who own logistics businesses might want to have free-flowing, cheap labour. Um, I think it's um, really a question for the government as to whether or not we want to have uh, free-flowing, cheap labour. You know, the reality is, you know, we like that because it keeps down labour prices. So what it does is it keeps the least well-off in society the least well off you know it doesn't advance their salaries but it is beneficial to people who run logistics companies so i'm sort of slightly hesitant to stand and, and praise free-flowing cheap labor because I, i'm not sure that socially that's a, um, a very fair concept 
Um, and, and uh, you know, all that leaving the EU does is means that the government can control how much immigration we want. So if in future um, an elected government wants to have a large amount of unskilled labour coming in in order to keep down labour costs, then the government will be able to do that. So just that our government can control immigration rather than have uncontrolled immigration. I think that's clearly a good thing. How could that possibly be a, a bad thing? It's hugely important that there is a deal. If there wasn't a deal, it would be a, a very significant issue in our sector. So there's a lot of talk about it, um, and almost rightly so. Um, I think the only problem is that you know you're just hearing the same issues talked over and over and over again. So actually. <laughs> The main thing that we can do is just sit and wait for probably the middle of November, at which point we may find out exactly what that deal is going to be and we may be able to react to that. Uh, the problem is you know, in the not knowing in the, in the short term, but it's very hard to second guess what, what exactly might happen at this point. We are preparing for both scenarios. We're preparing so that if necessary, we could... Um, reinstate customs clearance for all EU consignments and we would be ready for that if that were what was going to happen. I don't believe it will happen. I believe there will be a deal and customs will not be, customs clearance will not be reinstated from March next year. But we are preparing just in case it, it, it is. Andrew makes some interesting points on whether free-flowing cheap labour is socially acceptable and he doesn't think that Northern Ireland's border should be of much concern. My next voice is the voice of a driver, a voice of free-flowing cheap labour, a very different voice to Andrew's. It's one I haven't really heard in the debate so far, at least not in the mainstream media, so it was interesting to hear what he had to say. My name's Kevin Kearney. I'm a HGV driver. I'm from a small town called Mobile. It's about 20 minutes from the north-south border. Brexit has a lot of implications for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah big time. Okay, well let's sort of take it through the, those different implications. So, tell me how you feel about it on a personal level. On a personal level, I think it's ridiculous. From what I have experienced, it's done nothing but kind of generate hate. We don't know yet, but I don't know if I'll have the right to work here. Do you work with drivers from other parts of the EU? Yes, a lot of our drivers would be from all over. And do they feel similar to you? Yeah, as far as I know they do. And do you think UK businesses should be worried about not having drivers? It will make a big problem. With so many drivers right now being foreign nationals, including myself. I think it's going to collapse the transport industry, which means everything's going to be a lot later, if that makes sense. You're not going to get next day delivery on everything. You're not going to get... Uh, I'm not sure how to explain it, but from my experience, I think it is It's going to cause a lot of trouble. Do you think logistics operators should be doing more to help their drivers? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, even previously I've worked at MS and they delivered, well, so does Fresh Logistics, but MS delivers to Ireland. 
and my licence, I've passed my test here in the UK, so I've got a UK licence, and I'm not sure how that's going to transfer if I have to drive in Europe. I, I think those are the kind of questions that the drivers should know or should have more information on. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is the key, isn't it? Drivers don't know what type of licence they will need. And actually, will drivers want to come into England from Europe? Exactly. How much is that going to cost a European company if, if they're trying to transport their stock to England or Scotland? Like of that. Is it going to drive down the or drive up the market value of everything? Because there'll be more customs in place, more taxes. These are the questions, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I said it before. My biggest problem is uncertainty. It's the fact that even when you look up online, because there's no actual decisions made, we don't know anything about it. We don't know what's going to happen. For all I know, Brexit could come through, and I could be told. So you have to be out of here within the next six months. What kind of advice would you welcome? I would welcome some reassurance. Someone to let me know where I stand. Someone to let me know that my license is still going to be valid. If we get a phone call saying well, we've got a delivery from Liverpool to Dublin, how is that going to affect me as a driver crossing the border and no longer something that wasn't a border before, will my license still be covered? Will my driving orders be changed since it's now under EU rules, whereas it was under domestic rules? I know that organisations like the FTA, UKWA and the FSDF are doing sturdy work to keep their members informed and I hope that information filters down to drivers like Heavy, as well as warehouse pickers and packers. I'm sure that it does. But it's difficult, isn't it, when there's so much that's still uncertain. I actually asked Pauline Kevin's questions. Here's what she had to say. Well, Kevin is very lucky, <laughs> Kevin being Irish. In fact, we'll continue to have access to both the EU and the UK from an immigration point of view. The UK government has already said that they were going to protect the common travel area meaning that Irish citizens will continue to be able to travel freely to the UK and, and, and vice versa. So that's one piece of good news, I guess, for Kevin. In terms of what documents are needed, so if Kevin has the UK driving license, he might have to have, indeed, an international driving permit. The good news, I suppose, is that if Kevin wants to drive uh, only to the Republic of Ireland and, and from the Republic of Ireland uh, to, to the UK, he only needs to worry about one type of international driving permit, which is currently available, in fact, so he could already obtain it now. Now, if Kevin wants to drive in continental Europe, Kevin would need to obtain another sort of international driving permit uh, under the 1968 Vienna Convention, and these are unfortunately not yet available in the UK. They will be as of the 1st of February 2019, um, and could be obtained from 2,500 post office branches. Uh, we're trying to convince government that it would be a nice idea to have uh, to allow bulk orders and maybe orders through through mail as well, um, which is not currently foreseen. 
Um, and we're trying to see as well if it would be possible to expand the number of branches that are covered. Now, in terms of the access to the market, which of course <laughs> would be in the back of Kevin's mind, I would imagine, it depends very much on where uh, his company is based. He's actually based in the UK. The operator license that he's using, his company is registered in the UK. Uh, yes. Well, in that case, Kevin would need to consider what, what's the proportion of international transport, including to and from Ireland, that his company needs to perform. And the company, if that proportion is, is quite, quite high, I would strongly advise that they consider obtaining ECMT permits. Um, these permits are multilateral permits that will be available to obtain as of the 26th of November. Uh, there will be a four-week window of opportunity to, to, to apply for these permits. They will probably be allocated in the new year. Now, the problem is that there will be huge restrictions in place uh, because there's only enough permits for that 5% um, of the needs. Kevin and his company would be well inspired to keep a close eye on the application process and apply for one if, if, if they can. Because, of course, if they don't apply, then uh, it's going to be much more difficult because they won't have one. In parallel, we are trying to push towards an agreement with the Commission that would just cover uh, road haulage. It seems quite unlikely at this point, unfortunately, and we, we're still pushing very hard, uh, but we might have to fall back on bilateral agreements. Uh, now, there's none in place uh, with Ireland, uh, so if uh, Kevin was interested in continue continuing to drive in, in, in Ireland, um, of course, there would need to be a new agreement negotiated between the Republic of Ireland and the UK. This is not guaranteed, but it's something that we are pushing for very, very strongly, and we would like that to be as flexible as possible. From what Andrew, Kevin and Pauline are saying, and from what we do know, it's without question that there will be short-term complications. Pauline recently responded to a report from the National Audits Office, which was released late October, on preparations for an EU exit at the UK borders. She said that the report confirmed fears. The report from the National Audit Office on borders and Brexit basically confirmed all the fears we had. And uh, it was, I suppose, not so surprising in the sense that we followed that quite closely um, already, so we knew there were a lot of gaps. Uh, but it's certainly shedding some light onto a, a lot of our concerns and areas that we were worried about. Uh, for instance, it, it shows that out of the 12 IT projects that the government has to complete before Brexit Day, only uh, one at this point is going according to plan in terms of timing. The 11 remaining ones are beyond schedule. And it's quite helpful to see that it's not just about CDS, which is the system used for customs declarations that uh, a lot of people have been focusing on, uh, not, not least uh, in the House of Commons, uh, but there are a variety of systems that need to be in place for other purposes, uh, all interconnected, um, and yes, this is not progressing as quickly as, uh, as expected. Likewise, um, there are issues around uh, resourcing, finding the right resources to conduct the controls um, at the border or otherwise. Um, there are serious concerns expressed in terms of the plans uh, for Northern Ireland, for instance, in the, in the event of, uh, of no deal. 
And obviously, I guess the biggest thing from, from my point of view is that uh, it talks about the fact that the infrastructure at the border will not be ready on day one of no deal. Uh, and most importantly, that information that has been provided to industry has been uh, quite inadequate uh, and insufficient at this point. Um, and I would certainly echo the comments um, made by the National Audit Office that uh, indeed uh, it's difficult for industry to plan uh, when there are essentially conflicting messages and when a lot of details uh, that would be needed are, are, are missing or are only provided with the caveat that this would only be needed in the very unlikely event of no deal. Uh, so this is not particularly something that encourages companies to make uh, big investments uh, in some cases, uh, very hard choices. Uh, they need to know that this is going to be needed and if they are told at the same time that uh, this is quite unlikely to happen, uh, well, we shouldn't wonder why they are not preparing as perhaps the government is expecting them to. My readers are people who operate large and small logistics operations. What are the short-term complications? So in terms of the short-term complications, you might ne not necessarily see a big change one minute after um, 11 p.m. on the 29th of March in, in the event of New Deal, uh, but it would become apparent uh, probably after a while. Uh, we're very worried uh, that there would be a lot of disruption uh, at the border. I'm sure your readers will remember uh, the events of the summer of 2015 uh, when uh, the port of Kelly was facing um, well, social action, a strike, um, and uh, there were huge issues as well with stowaways. Um, so the port was pretty much blocked actually for quite quite a few a few weeks, um, and it created huge disruption on the other side. So uh, in Kent, uh, in this case, um, we're anticipating that essentially two minutes uh, more per per truck would create a tailback of 17 miles, um, and that's a relatively conservative assumption. Um, so government is indeed looking at all kinds of contingency measures as, uh, as highlighted in the uh, um, National Audit Office report. Um, they are trying to see um, how they could uh, uh, develop uh, various measures with contra flows on, on, on major motorways and roads uh, leading to uh, uh, well, the port of Dover but also your tunnel. But However, I mean, it, it's good to see that there are measures that are being discussed, but the plans are not fully finalized yet, and they need to be tested. And obviously, because you've got plans to hold the trucks, doesn't mean that they're not going to be disruption. Um, certainly, there will be a lot of disruption for the delivery of, of, of goods, uh, because when you're in these holding areas or control flows or uh, where, where, wherever you have to wait uh, or if you have to go more slowly than you would usually, uh, by definition, this will have a big impact on the lead times, on the transport times uh, overall, and that means on the delivery times as well. Uh, obviously, that's not something the public will necessarily see, but for the companies, there will be uh, consequences as well in terms of red tape. Uh, so that's not something that will necessarily be under the spotlight, but it's something that the companies have to prepare for. Uh, they have to recruit, to train, make more use of intermediaries uh, in some cases, and obviously red tape also means more cost. Um, 
And one thing we are very worried about is the impact that New Deal could have on transport. So transport, as it happens at WTO level, is not liberalized. Only maritime transport is safe from that point of view because it was liberalized a long time ago. But road haulage, aviation, rail freight would all be very drastically impacted in the event of New Deal with massive restrictions in place in terms of access to the market. So the ability of the transport companies to perform transport operations across the border. And obviously this is a very big problem that constrains trade uh, to a large extent. So we're trying to address that and find solutions together with government. Pauline sounds frustrated, but not as frustrated as MP Yvette Cooper does in the following clip from the Evening Standard News website. I'm sure you are. I am sure that you will be doing absolutely everything you can to mitigate these risks. What I want to understand is what is the scale of the risks, and surely Parliament has a right to know this information. Well, I think it would probably be better for me to come back to the committee. It it strikes me that part of the answer to your question can only be known um, once we've actually had the conversations necessary if we find ourselves in that position. So the sorts of things that Mr Lincoln is talking about involve some of those uh, discussions with Interpol and um, bilateral arrangements. In terms of We've only got five months left. If there is no deal, surely you will have done, I mean surely it was only one of the top priorities to do a security assessment of what the consequences are of no deal at the border. Yvette lost her patience with border officials who appeared uncertain on the risks a no-deal Brexit would pose to UK security. Yes, Yvette, we agree, it's frustrating. As a keen eater, I can't help wondering what my dinner plate will look like during this difficult transition period. I recently caught up with the Chief Executive of the Food, Storage and Distribution Federation, Shane Brennan, who reminds us that we shouldn't over-catastrophise. I'm Shane Brennan and I'm Chief Executive of the Food, Storage and Distribution Federation. I think when we look at the issues around the media discussion and the government discussion around no deal planning, there's been a lot of talk about the issue around customs checks and the issue of whether what's happened with the WTO terms and the idea of the traffic jam on the M20. Within that, that all those issues are relatively complex and there's quite a lot of planning involved. I think we're a bit concerned there hasn't been enough talk about how we specifically move food as if there is a worst-case scenario no-deal Brexit. There are very strict laws around what checks need to be undertaken on exports out of the UK into the EU if we were a third country. And we're not convinced that there's been enough grip of where do we physically do those sorts of checks if they have to happen, what facilities, where they happen at the port, unlikely to happen at Dover or uh, or at Eurotunnel, where alternatives might be used. And we are continuing to talk about that with government, but we're not really clear whether that is potentially has been properly covered off. Is there anything your members can be doing or my readers can be doing to support that initiative? So I think the key thing is obviously is making sure that those are making decisions, so particularly local MPs and those that are involved in the debate, because this is all going to be in Parliament over the, between now and Christmas and, in, and into the new year, making sure they are aware of this, of this specific problem and also making sure that they are looking out for the work of FSDF, feeding information into me to make sure that I know what the specific issues are there, that they're because risks areas as, as they see them. Um, we shouldn't be over catastrophizing, over catastrophizing, over catastrophizing.
ultimately we have to have the attitude of trying to muddle through whatever scenario is handed to us and as logisticians as an industry we will continue to get food to our customers whether it's in this country or get it exported out overseas but it doesn't mean it's not going to be incredibly complicated and incredibly intense period of interaction as we go into the next few months and there you have it everything is going to be to be strap yourselves in I'll now leave you with an excerpt from Yes Minister from the early 1980s where they discussed the UK's relationship with the European Union. Enjoy. Just let the Foreign Office realise what damage this will do to the European idea. Well, I'm sure they do. That's why they support it. Well, surely the Foreign Office is pro-Europe, isn't it? Yes and no. <laughs> if you'll forgive the expression. The Foreign Office is pro-Europe because it is really anti-Europe. The civil service was united in its desire to make sure that the common market didn't work. That's why we went into it. What are you talking about? <laughs> Minister, Britain has had the same foreign policy objective for at least the last 500 years, to create a disunited Europe. In that cause, we have fought with the Dutch against the Spanish, with the Germans against the French, with the French and Italians against the Germans, and with the French against the Germans and Italians. Divide and rule, you see. Why should we change now, when it's worked so well? <laughs> Ancient history, surely. Yes, and current policy. We had to break the whole thing up, so we had to get inside. We tried to break it up from the outside, but that wouldn't work. Now that we're inside, we can make a complete pig's breakfast of the whole thing. <laughs> Set the Germans against the French, the French against the Italians, the Italians against the Dutch. The Foreign Office is terribly pleased. It's just like old times. <laughs> Surely we're all committed to the European ideal. Really, Minister? <laughs> if not, why are we pressing for an increase in the membership? Well, for the same reason. It's just like the United Nations, in fact. The more members it has, the more arguments it can stir up, the more futile and impotent it becomes. What appalling cynicism. Yes. We call it diplomacy, Minister. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode five of the Logistics Podcast. Please do email me with any comments or suggestions for future episodes on kirsty.adams at informa.com. The topic for the next episode is healthcare on demand, where we'll discuss pills arriving in the post and other trends we're seeing in the sector. Finally, you should have your November issue by now. Please do read our automation roundtable and have a look at the interview with Nisa Retail's John Snow and all the other great content, of course. See you next time. Mm-hmm.